nice to be here in the house of the Lord. Amen. Amen. God has been so good. I'm telling you, it's been a beautiful year. We've had a lot of beautiful rain. Um, the flowers, the grass is all still green instead of burn up like it normally is this time of year. I really praise the Lord for everything that he's done for us. I also want to welcome our visitors. I see we have visitors here, and I just want to, it's nice to have you here. Thank you for coming and being with us. I'd like to have a prayer, if you don't mind, right before I start. Dearly Father, I just want to thank you. What a privilege it is, again, to be in your house of worship, Lord. And truly, our purpose for being here is to worship you in song and word. And we just so praise your name for your shedding your blood on the cross for us and for dying for us. We ask you that you would forgive us for any sins that we might have committed. May there be nothing that would hinder your presence from being here with us. Let your angels, as Dan said, encircle us, protect us from the dark forces, and uh, may you be with each and every one of us, and help me, Lord, present your message as you have instructed me through your word and through the spirit of prophecy, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. He's one of the glasses here, Ryan. Um, my subject this morning is the great controversy. I find a great controversy to be one of the most fantastic subjects that uh, the Lord has given us in this church. And it was in 1858 at Lovett's Grove, which is now Bowling Greens, that James White was holding a meeting in which Ellen White was present and she was sitting up on the podium. And while that meeting was going on, Ellen White went into a two-hour vision in which she was given the great controversy. And in that vision, um, she was instructed that she was to put what the Lord had showed her during that two-hour vision and to place it into a book and put it into writing. And she was warned by God that Satan would put forth an effort to hinder her from keeping from doing that writing. And on her way back to Battle Creek, Michigan, in which she lived, they stopped at Jackson, uh, which is a city there in Michigan, and while she was at a brother and sister's home, it was the Palmers, and while she was actually talking to Mrs. Palmer, Ella White suffered a stroke of paralysis. The whole left side of her went limb, her tongue like swelled up, she couldn't feel cold water upon her forehead or felt even any pressure upon her hand. And Ellen and James White made their way back to Michigan Battle Creek, and Ella White was, was still impressed that she needed to write the book irregardless of what had happened. And what Ellen White would do, she'd get up in the morning and she would write one page. It took all the strength that she had, and then she rested for three days. And at the end of the three days, she got up and she wrote another page, and then rested another three days. And then slowly, the more she did that, her strength gradually came back, to where the paralysis was completely gone and she was able to completely write that book. And Ellen White stated that she was shown in vision in June of 1958, I'm sorry, 1858, she was shown in vision that by, by that this attack in Jackson was intended by Satan to take her life and to hinder her from keeping from writing those things that she wrote in the book. And what I find interesting is, although Ellen White was attacked many times in her life in various ways, no doubt through, if you will, the dark forces, but in none of Ellen White's other writings was she ever so attacked by Satan so violently 
to keep her and to hinder her from writing that book. So the question is, what is in that book that Satan doesn't want you and me to know and the world? And there was actually many things in that book that uh, Satan doesn't want you to know. Because in there it tells a whole Christian story from the very beginning of Eden all the way to the close of time. And really everything that happens in between. Amen? Amen. But I find it very interesting that if you ask the most or the majority of, of Adventists what the great controversy is all about. You know, what's its core message? What is the heart of the great controversy? What is the great controversy about? Most Seventh-day Adventists will usually give you a statement like this. Well, it's a battle between good and evil. Or it is, a, it is a war between Christ and Satan. And those are true statements. It is true. But it's a very broad statement. But I'm looking for is, what is the great controversy? What is it, what's the core? What is it all about? What happened? And today, if you don't know the answer, and I hope that you do, but if you don't, today that will be our study we will actually go into the study of the great controversy and understand what the core, the heart of the controversy is all about. Here is actually a copy of the book, that, and it was the 1888 edition, that was uh, what it looked like back in Ellen White's day. That's what the book looked like. So, to find our answer, what the great controversy is all about, we need to go to none other than the great controversy itself. So in the great controversy in chapter 36 called the impending conflict, we are told this. From the very beginning of the great controversy in heaven, it has been Satan's purpose to overthrow the law of God. So what from the very beginning was the purpose of the great controversy for Satan? To do what? To overthrow the law of God. It was to accomplish this that he entered upon rebellion against the Creator, and though he was cast out to heaven to earth, he continued the same warfare on earth to overthrow God's law upon the earth, and Satan sought to deceive men and thus lead them to transgress God's law. This is the object which he has steadfastly pursued, whether this be accomplished by casting the law of God altogether aside or by rejecting just one precept, the result will be ultimately the same. The Bible says that he that offends in one point manifests contempt for the whole law. His influence, his examples are on the side of transgression. He becomes guilty of all. And that's found in James 2, 2 and verse 10, Great Controversy 582. So what is the Great Controversy all about? It has to do with God's law, okay? But I'm telling you, it's a lot more than that, as you will see shortly. And the question you have to, you know, you have to wonder, you know, why, you know, why is Satan seeking to overthrow God's law? Why? You know, that's the question. Well, to understand it, you have to go back into the Bible and understand what happened in the very beginning. In Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 17, we're told this. Now, of course, Ezekiel's a prophet. We're going to go into Isaiah. He's a prophet. But the prophet Ezekiel says this. Thine regards the loose fert. Your heart was lifted up because of thy beauty, and thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. So Lucifer was an extremely bright being. He was an extremely intelligent being, and he was and, uh, and he had like and he was beautiful and he was very bright. In Isaiah chapter fourteen and verses twelve through fourteen, we're told this. 
How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? You know, how? You know, how did this happen? It said, How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? And this is what the answer is. For thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. So why was Jesus? Or why was Satan attacking the law? We're going to see a little bit more as to why. But his purpose was he wanted to be God. He wanted to ascend above the stars of God. He wanted to be like the Most High. The Spirit of Prophecy gives us a little bit more detail in the Great Controversy, page 493, we're told this. That Jesus, the only begotten of God, was one with the Eternal Father, one in nature and in character and in purpose. The only being in all the universe that could enter into all the counsels and purposes of God. Lucifer, next to Christ, had been the most honored of God and who stood highest in power and glory among the inhabitants of heaven. Amazing, isn't it? Here Lucifer was the highest created being in all of God's universe in heaven. In fact, the Bible says this in Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 through 15, in regards to Lucifer. Thus says the Lord God, speaking in regards to Lucifer, Thou sealest up the sum. You were the cream of the cream. All right? You were the top of the top. You sealest the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Every precious stone was thy covering. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou was perfect in the ways that thou was created until iniquity was found in his heart. Amazing. And although this has happened, God still pleaded with Lucifer. I mean, he could have blotted him out, made him disappear just like that, ended the subject, but he didn't. He cared about Lucifer. He loved Lucifer. And the Bible, and then we're told in the great controversy that God in his mercy bore along with Lucifer. And in the spirit of prophecy, we're told this in great controversy, page 495. The heavenly councils pleaded with Lucifer. The son of God um, presented before him the greatness and goodness and the justice of the creator and the sacred, unchanging nature of his law. Yes, God knew that Satan would seek to overthrow his law. God himself had established the order of heaven, and in departing from it, meaning God's law, Lucifer would dishonor his maker and bring upon himself uh, ruin upon himself. But the warning giving and infinite love and mercy only aroused a spirit of resistance. Lucifer allowed jealousy of Christ to prevail, and he became more determined. Pride in his own glory nourished the desire for supremacy. He gloried in his brightness and exaltation in the position which God had given him, and he aspired to be equal with God. He was beloved and reverenced by the heavenly host, and angels delighted to execute his commands. And he was clothed with wisdom and glory above them all. Yet the Son of God was acknowledged as the sovereign of heaven, one in power and authority with the Father, in all the counsels of God, Christ was only participant while Lucifer was not permitted thus to enter into the divine purposes. And this is what Lucifer's thought. 
Why, questioned Lucifer, should Christ have the supremacy? Why is he, why is he thus honored above me? And we're told in Great Controversies, page 494, and instead of seeking to make God supreme and the affections and allegiance of all God's creatures towards God's, it was Lucifer's endeavor to win their service and homage to himself. Isn't that amazing? Not only this, so the reason why Lucifer was attacking God's law, because Lucifer knew that he couldn't attack God right out, right? There's no way he can just start, you know, accusing God of all stuff. So he did it very sneakily. He attacked God's law. But he knew that when he was attacking God's law, who was he really attacking? The author of God's law, right? By attacking God's law, he was attacking, in fact, God himself. And when this all happened, Lucifer made, made up his final decision. We're told again in Great Controversy 495 that Lucifer had left his place immediately in the presence of God. And then Lucifer went forth to do something. He wanted to diffuse the spirit of discontent among the angels, working with mysteriously secrecy and for a time concealing his real purpose under the appearance of reverence for God. He endeavored to excite dissatisfaction according to God's laws that governed his heavenly beings, intimidating, proclaiming that they imposed unnecessary restraint. Since their natures were holy, he urged that the angels should obey the dictates of their own will, and he sought to create sympathy for himself by representing that God had dealt unjustly with him in bestowing supreme honor upon Christ he claimed that in aspiring to a greater power and honor, it was not aiming at self-exaltation, which we know is not true, but that he was seeking secure liberty for all his inhabitants of heaven, and that by this means they may attain to a higher state of existence. So we now have a bigger picture, again, why Lucifer was attacking God's law. And Satan was no dummy. Satan knew what God's law represented, as we all know, because we've talked about it many times in this church. We're told in Steps to Christ, page 60, that the law of God is an expression of his very nature. It is the embodiment of the great principles of love, and hence it is the foundation of his government in heaven and earth. We're also told in Lift Him Up, page 147, that the law is a transcript of God's very character. So there's no doubt that Satan knew that if he was going to attack God, he could attack him through his law. And so he was belittling the law and trying to show him that it was binding and restrictive. And we're also told in our high calling, page 138, that the law of God from given from Sinai is a copy of the mind and will of the infinite God. So what is God's will? To keep his law, right? That's why Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's why we were told, as we said in Sabbath school in Ecclesiastes, I think verse chapter 12, here's the sum of the, of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And that's the reason why the law is spoke about so many times from Old Testament to New Testament. You find the law everywhere. You find it in the sanctuary. You find it in the throne of God. The law is very important because it becomes a controversy in the great controversy. And the result of all this, as you know, there was a war in heaven. 
We're told that because of this, because of Satan's position, his attack on God's law, which inadvertently was attacking God, there was a war between Christ and Satan. Eventually Satan, and unfortunately one-third of the angels who bought Satan's lie and believed that God's law was restrictive and that God wasn't treating Satan unfair, they were cast out of heaven and cast down to the earth. And as we already read, it's been Satan's purpose to continue this same warfare. The warfare against what? God's law upon the earth. So again, the great controversy is over the law. And this is what God eventually determined for Satan. In Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 17 through 19, we're told this. Because thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty... Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitudes of thy iniquities. By the iniquities of thy traffic, spreading sin to all the whole, not only in heaven, but to the heavens on earth. Therefore, I will bring forth a fire from the midst of thee. It shall devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth. In the sight of them that behold thee. And all that know thee among the people shall be astonished at thee. And thou shalt be a terror and never shalt thou be no more. So you see in the great controversy there's a lot at stake for Lucifer. Because Lucifer knows that when he was cast down to the earth we were told that he was, his existence will only be for what? A long time or a short time? A short time. So in order for Satan to win in the great controversy, his aim is still to prove that God's law is unjust and unfair. In fact, we're told this in Review and Herald, March 9th, 1886. Never forget this. Satan's work has ever been to find fault with the law of God. That's what his aim is. And, and again... We know from what we've already read from the very beginning, it's been Satan's purpose to overthrow God's law. And how does Satan seek to do it? By finding what? Fault with God's law. That's what we're told. And it's very interesting that after Satan caused the fall of man upon the earth, listen to these accusations of Satan. And ask yourself, does Satan think he found fault? After the fall of man, this is found in First Selected Messages, page 252. After the fall of man, Satan declared that human beings were proved to be incapable of keeping God's law. And we're told in Signs of Time, January 16, 1896, Satan declared that it was impossible for the sons and daughters of Adam to keep the law of God. Let me ask you. Who are the sons and daughters of Adam? We are. Satan says, you've been all proved to be incapable of keeping the law. Listen to this. Satan declared that it was impossible for the sons and daughters of Adam to keep the law of God and thus charged upon God a lack of wisdom and love if they, the sons and daughters of God, you and me, could not keep the law, then there was fault. With the lawgiver. That's the great controversy, my friends. The great controversy is that God give a law that the sons, not only that Adam and Eve couldn't keep, 
And Satan and the fallen angels couldn't keep it, but you can't keep it either. That's the great controversy. Let me ask you a question. And I don't want you to answer it. I just want you to think about it. Have you ever heard somebody say that God's law can't be kept? Think about that. Whose side of the great controversy are they on? Whose voice are they declaring? Now listen, make no mistake about it. Nobody can keep God's law in of yourself, okay? I'm not saying that. But I am saying with God, you can keep God's law and you can keep it perfectly. And there are people in this world who will tell you, hey, I don't like the word perfect. You can't be perfect. Let me ask you this question. When God said, thou shalt not kill, did he mean thou shalt not kill like no killing? He meant you to keep that perfectly. When God said, thou shalt not steal, did he say, hey, listen, you can still steal just a little bit. Do you know what I mean? No. He wants you to keep it perfectly. No stealing, right? So let's not be afraid of the word perfection. It means don't do what God says don't to do. The question is, and I want you to think about it, was Satan right in the great controversy? I'm going to read some Bible to you here. In Romans 3.23 we're told this, All have sinned. Who, how many have sinned? All. Oh. And the Bible tells you that sin is transgression of the law. 1 John 3, 4. And we're told that all have come short of the glory of God. And the Bible says there are none that are righteous. No, not one. So question. Be honest. Whom does it appear to be right in the great controversy? Right? It appears that way. I'm not saying he's right, but you have to admit, it appears that way. And all the universe is watching. All the unfallen worlds is watching. All the unfallen angels in heaven are watching. Satan has came and God, you gave a law to human beings they can't keep. Look, none of them can keep it. And therefore, none of them can keep it. You're at fault. And because you're at fault, he was trying to overturn God's law, but really he's attacking God. I want to read something in the Spirit of Prophecy to you. It's found in First Selected Messages, page 252. Satan's words appeared to be true in that the sons and daughters of God could not keep God's law. And Satan sought to carry the, universe, the whole entire universe with him in this belief. That's the great controversy. Don't look good, right? The whole universe is watching. Satan's accusations seem to be true. And they're all watching. But what was God's response to Satan's false accusations? I'll tell you what God's response was. God decided he was going to send his son into the world. And he was going to send them in and he was going to become a human being. He was going to become one of the sons and daughters of Adam. With a fallen nature just like you and I have. And prove that Satan is a liar in a great controversy. And that the law could be kept and it could be kept perfectly. 
And we're told this in three selected messages, again, page 129. He, Jesus, came into our world to maintain a pure sinless character and to refute Satan's lie that it was not possible for human beings to keep the law of of God. Christ came to live the law in his human character and listen to this, in just that way in which all may live the law in human nature, listen, if they will do as Christ was doing. Amen? Did God give a law that man couldn't keep? No. No. Satan is a liar. And we're told this in Review and Herald, February 24th, page 1874. What love. What amazing condensation. The King of Glory proposed to humble himself to fallen humanity. He would place his feet in Adam's steps. He would take man's fallen nature. I'm sorry, what nature did he take? Oh, fallen nature. So just by the way, a little side note, all the books that you find in some of the Adventist bookstores that say that Christ didn't take his fallen nature, you now know it's a lie. But in all fairness, there's plenty of other books that you'll find in the ABCs that will say that Christ took the fallen nature, okay? Make no mistake about it, Christ took the fallen nature. And he engaged to cope with the strong foe who triumphed over Adam. Yes, brothers and sisters, Jesus would become, as the Bible said, made of a woman, made under the law. He would become the seed of David according to human consent. Yes, he would become one of the sons and daughters of Adam with the same fallen nature that you and I have to prove in the great controversy that Satan is a liar. And that's why Jesus is not only the Son of God, Jesus is also what? The Son of Man. That's why he became, and he's called the Son of Man. And what was Satan's response when he heard and learned what Jesus was proposing and God was proposing to do? That his son would take man's fallen nature and dare to to challenge him in the great controversy that God gave a law that couldn't be kept. I want to read this statement to you. It's amazing. It's found in Early Writings, page 152. This is what we are told. Satan rejoiced with his fallen angels that he could, by causing man's fall, pull down the Son of God from his exalted position. He told his angels that when Jesus should take fallen man's nature, he could overpower him. Do you see the great controversy? The great controversy is not is over God's law, but it's more than that. Did God give a law that you and me could not keep? And this is what we're told. You already know what happened. And of course, as you know, uh, Satan attacked Jesus with temptations far beyond anything that any one of us here will ever have to go through. Amen? And this is what we're told in 11 message releases. 11 message releases, page 213. If anybody wants to see quotes, I printed this out. If anybody wants to afterwards look at some of the quotes, you're happy to write them down. Christ refuted Satan's boast that no one could live a spotless life. I'm sorry, let me read it. Christ refuted Satan's boast that no one could live a spotless life. Christ came to suffer a man's behalf, for Satan had made the boast that no one could withstand his devising and in this world live a spotless life. Clothed with human nature, the Redeemer subjected himself to all the temptations which human beings are beset, and he overcame on every point. 
Three selected messages, page 16. He, Jesus, redeems Adam's disgraceful fall and was conqueror, thus testifying to all the fallen worlds and to fallen humanity, that's you and me, that man could keep the commandments of God. Amen? Amen. But you know, and we could say, okay, well, that was the end of the great controversy. Jesus proved it. Satan's a liar. Man could keep God's law and we can all go home. But we would be sadly mistaken. And this is what I think that Satan doesn't want us to know. It didn't end there. The great controversy is still going on. I want to read this statement to you. It's found in Messages to Young People, page 165. Christ was afflicted, insulted, abused on the right hand and on the left. He was assailed by temptation to sin, yet he sinned not. But presented to God a perfect obedience that was entirely satisfactory. By this, he removed every semblance of excuse for disobedience. He came, listen, he came to show man how to obey, how to keep all the commandments of God. And we're told one way in which he did it. He laid hold upon divine power. And this is the sinner's only hope. Amen? He gave his life that men might be partakers of divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You see, the Son of God came to our world to reveal to the world that man, as God created him, could keep the law. And I'm going to read this statement again, which I already read, because it's very key. It's very important that we get this and we understand this. Again, three selected messages, page 129. He, Jesus, came into our world to maintain a sinless character and to refute Satan's lie that it was not possible for human beings to keep the law of God. Christ came to live the law in his human character, listen, in just that way in which all may live the law in human nature, get this, if they will do as Christ was doing. So we have our work cut out. You want to have victory over sin? You want to keep God's law? We need to study the life of Christ and learn what he was doing because Christ came to show us that. That's why Jesus says in Revelation that we are to overcome even as what? He overcame. Don't tell me this isn't biblical. Oh, it's very biblical. Why would Jesus tell us to overcome even as he overcame if he didn't intend for us to do that? Why would he tell us to, if you love me, keep my commandments? I mean, if you really love me, exalt the law, okay? With my power, with my divinity. And I will tell you something, the entire universe is watching. But I got good news for you. Will God have a people upon this earth to keep his law? Prophecy, prophecy in the Bible says that he will. Because in Revelation 14 verse 12 we're told this, Here is the patience of the saints, here are they they to keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. This is a prophetic statement. The question is, Are you going to be there? Are you willing to overcome even as Christ overcame? Are you willing to do what Christ was doing? We, my brothers and sisters, are in the great controversy. Not only did Christ come to prove in the great controversy that Satan's a liar and that the sons and daughters, fallen sons and daughters, could keep God's law. He came to show you how. And now he's going to have a people at the end that prove doubly prove that Satan is a liar. Do you see that? 
It's important that you understand that. That's the great controversy. Yes, the great controversy has a lot more information on little events, on what's going to happen, what did happen, and how we got to where we are. But if you miss this, you missed it all. Anybody who makes the statement that you can't keep God's law, guess which banner you're standing under? Guess which end of the great controversy that you're on? What a terrible statement for any Christian of God to make. Because in doing so, just like Satan, we are actually attacking God. Whether we know it or not, even beknownst to us. And we're told this. First manuscript releases, page 213. To every soul who strives for perfection of character, and character is what? God's law is a transcript of his character, right? To every soul who strives for perfection of character in keeping God's law, and I'm adding this both inwardly and outwardly, this world, listen, this world becomes a battlefield on which is fought the great controversy between good and evil, and everyone who trusts Christ will gain the victory. Amen? Do you see that? The great controversy is still going. And we're also told this, and I can't give you the name of the book, but it's 1NL, page 84. I don't remember what NL stands for, I'm sorry. We're told this, that he who rejects the life and character of Jesus, refusing to be like him, declares himself to be in controversy with God. Big statement. Big statement. So let me say it in another way. He, re- he who rejects to do as Christ has shown and do what Christ was doing to keep the law, not in them themselves, but through God, he who refuses to do that has actually, in the great controversy, you have entered into controversy with God himself, whether you know it or not. We are to overcome as Jesus overcame. And we are told that he that overcometh, we know what that is now. Overcometh means overcome sin and keeping God's law. We're going to do as Christ did. Jesus says this. He that overcome shall not be heard of the second death. Revelations 2.11. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white remnant. And I will not blot his name out of the bustle overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. Revelation 3.21. The question is, brothers and sisters, are you willing Are you going to be an overcomer? And this takes striving. And it takes some studying. We must study the life of Christ to understand how he did it. If he came to show us the way, the truth, and the life, then we must study Christ's life to understand what the truth and the way and the life is. How did he do it, right? I'm going to read this last statement and then I'll close. And I could go on, but I won't. Signs of Time, July 23rd, 1902. Those who believe on Christ and obey all His commandments are not under bondage to the law. For to those who believe and obey, His law is not a law of bondage, but of liberty. Everyone who believes on Christ, everyone who relies on the keeping power of the risen Savior that has suffered the penalty pronounced upon the transgressor, Every one who resists temptation in the midst of evil copies the pattern given in the life of Christ will through faith in the atoning sacrifice of Christ become partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, 
And everyone who by faith obeys God's commandments all will reach the condition of sinlessness in which Adam lived before his transgression. Amen? That, my friends, is what the great controversy is all about. And I pray that none of us ever forget it. We are in the great controversy. When you wake up in the morning, think about that. I'm in the great controversy. Am I going to show in the great controversy? Am I going to be those that stand here? Are they to keep the commandments of God? Or are we not? Can you not keep the commandments of God and still go to heaven? Think about it. How many sins kept Adam out of the Garden of Eden? And we are told it's only one sin that will keep us out of the kingdom of heaven. It only makes sense that when God first created man, he created him with the law written in his heart and mind. And there was a tree of life and we're told in the very end, those will be born again will have God's law written again in their hearts and mind. And again, there's a tree of life. Okay? And you're in the middle. So which direction will you choose? And I pray that you choose to study Christ's life. And the next time I preach, we're going to go into that. What did Christ show? Well, how are we to copy the life of Christ? And I've shared some key points in here. And just because there's some here that I may never see again, I will share a couple of things. One, as we already learned, you can't do it without God, okay? So that means your faith can't be in yourself to keep God's law. If you try doing, keeping the law yourself, it's like holding a heavy rock. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is what? Weak. And sooner or later, you might for a while keep God's law, but sooner or later you're going to drop it. And why are you at mistake there? Because your faith is in yourself to hold the rock. Your faith has got to be in God. And the other thing which I find that the majority, and it's taken me, honestly, it's taken me years to learn this myself, is that you have to surrender your will. Whatever the sin is in your life, whatever that's got you in shackles, God cannot give you victory unless you surrender it to Him. You can be honest with yourself and say, listen, I don't want to give it up, but I surrender what I want to do, and I'm going to do what God wants me to do, and therefore I surrender what I want to do, and I choose not to do it. I'm going to do what God wants to do. And when you in your mind surrender it to God, and then you put faith in God to give you the victory, guess what? God gives you the victory. In fact, there's a statement in the Spirit of Prophecy that says this. When man surrenders the will, when he fully surrenders the will, the root of the matter is reached. So I just want to give you something to think about, okay? And if you don't mind, I'd like to have a closing prayer with you. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the great controversy. Thank you so much that you've given this church the gift of the spirit of prophecy in which Ellen White actually just extracted, really, the message from the Bible. She magnified your word. She brought these things to light that we cannot miss it. Oh, how you love your remnant church. Oh, how you love us, Lord. And oh, how you want to write your law upon our hearts and our minds. Only if we're willing to surrender our will to do your will. Only if we're willing to study the pattern in which Christ has shown. We are to overcome even as he overcame. 
Let that be the aim in our life, Lord. Let us cooperate with you in the plan of salvation so we can stand with those as prophecy has foretold. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you will never let our spirits rest. May your Holy Spirit forever prick our hearts to reach that goal is all of our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.